Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 64 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Naturopathic Mama, an interview with Dr. Nicola Ducharme. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Nicola Ducharme. Dr. Nicola Ducharme is a licensed naturopath trained in the United States and Australia. She began her career by working with children with autism, and interestingly, she started noticing patterns in the mothers of the children that she was treating. They were constantly sick and exhibited the same symptoms as each other. When one of the mothers tested positive for Lyme disease, Dr. Ducharme theorized that the other mothers may have had it and well could have passed it on to their children in utero. This pattern caused Dr. Ducharme to analyze a potential connection between autism and Lyme, which became a trigger to pivot the focus of her practice to treating Lyme disease. She has become internationally recognized as a Lyme disease expert. She's the author of several books on Lyme disease and has developed two online training programs, Lyme Ed for Patients and Lyme Ed for Practitioners. Dr. Ducharme travels the world to share her knowledge of Lyme and to help her patients. Hello, Dr. Nicola, how are you? I am very well, thank you, how are you? Good, thank you for joining the program. Yeah, you're welcome, it's exciting to be here. So can you share with us your background and how you ultimately came to the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was born in England, but moved to Australia when I was six. So I mostly grew up in Australia. Very healthy, happy upbringing. But I was always just obsessed with the United States. I was fascinated. So I wanted to do student exchanges when I was in high school. I watched all the American movies. I watched The Outsiders like 20 different times and just always saw myself being in the U.S. somehow. But Australia is a long way away, so it sort of seemed like a bit of a dream. And then ultimately, I did what all young Aussies do and just sort of sell up everything and quit your job and move out of your apartment and grab a backpack. And I landed myself at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning in San Francisco with a year up my sleeve and $25,000 in the, tucked in the bottom of my backpack. And I backpacked around the States for three months. And it was super fun and met a whole lot of really interesting people. And then when I got to New York, I met my second cousins for the first time. And so I stayed with them in New York and I saw New York through their life. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't a tourist. I was like in their family and it just was the best. I thought New York was the best thing since sliced bread. So I was determined to spend more time there. And I ended up, you know, after going home to Australia, coming back and nannying for them, but that wasn't sustainable legally with visas and stuff. So I came back to Australia and found an internship program that puts young Aussies and young Brits in New York for a year provides the visa, housing, job placement, health insurance, all of that. So I thought that is just my cup of tea. But I'd qualified in Australia as a naturopath. And I thought, well, most of the jobs were like American Express, British Airways. I thought, oh, gosh, well, I'm taking a year out, but I've got to get this New York thing out of my system. And then I can go back to Australia and settle down and work as a naturopath. Well, what ended up happening by some divine intervention is I got the only medical placement on the program. So I was acting as an assistant to a researcher at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. And so that was really pivotal for me because even though I didn't want to be a researcher or really an MD, that was never on my radar, just being around those brilliant people and just sort of, it just leveled me up, you know, into, in what I thought was possible for me. And then a family friend suggested that I went off to Bastyr University to do naturopathic medicine, which she was a nurse. I, I half think she was sort of living vicariously through me because by the time it was on her radar, she had grown children. And, you know, my first reaction was, oh, gosh, no way. That's too much, too big. Four years, gosh, how, how would that happen? 
And then, of course, second thing you know, there I was flying off to Seattle to get my doctorate and spent four years there. And I thought, well, look, if I want to practice as a naturopath, I have to get the American equivalent, the highest level here. And plus, I wanted to be in America. So I thought, gosh, that's four years on a student visa. No doubt I'll be married by the end of that. And I'll live happily ever after in America. So how did the uh, marriage plans work out? Well, uh, not so well then. I am now successfully married many years later. But um, I did get in with a practice that was willing to sponsor my work visa. And, and that was great. And that was a really, really good practice, a good starting point for my career anyway. Um, great people. They trained me up really well. And so, yeah, now I'm happily married with, with my little daughter. But this is like 25 years later. <laughs> Let's uh, walk back to your initial practice that you had worked at. What type of training did you get there and what kind of experience did you develop? Yeah, well, it was really interesting because I got in with biohealth centers and they are mostly known now for their functional medicine lab, biohealth diagnostics. At the time, they had a clinic just north of San, San Diego and they had me starting to see patients there and I was going to focus on like female hormones and adrenals and things like that. Kurt Wooler was the medical director, and he was really focused on autism. So he ended up training me in all his autism work, and that opened up a number of doors, including going to do outreach clinics all around the country with Great Plains Lab. I did some consulting for a supplement company called New Beginnings, which is their sister company. And Kurt basically taught me everything he knew about working with kids on the spectrum. And that was a great starting point, and I really, really enjoyed that. But what ended up happening, and this is like the pivotal point to the Lyme work, is I started having appointments with some of the mums of these kids. They were coming to me and they were saying, oh, everything hurts. I'm tired all the time and I get headaches and I don't know what to do. And I thought it was just because I was a mom coping with a special needs child. And so because I was into the functional medicine world by that point, I said, well, let's run some tests and sort of see what we can find, you know, adrenal, thyroid, heavy metals. Lyme, Epstein-Barr, like all these different variables. And that's when the Lyme piece started because it kept coming up over and over again. And I thought, gosh, there's something to this. This is really bizarre. And I talked it over with Dr. Wooler and he said to me, actually, and I was fairly new in practice and still trying to build. And I remember the day Dr. Wooler said to me, Nicola, Lyme is a huge thing. If you want a busy practice, you treat Lyme. And the first thing I thought in my head was, I want a busy practice. And so it just naturally progressed from there. And when I look back sort of from hindsight, I think there was other reasons that I was brought into the Lyme world because my own personal health journey was not one of them. And I can elaborate more, a little bit more on that later if you would like. But, but that's kind of what got me started at that time. Dr. Nicola, I'm interested in understanding the distinction between a naturopathic doctor and a medical doctor and why you desired to be a naturopathic doctor rather than a medical doctor. So in Australia, just to kind of set the context, in Australia, a naturopath is a three-year diploma program. And when I left, there were universities starting to sort of turn it into a four-year Bachelor of Health Sciences in naturopathy. So it was an undergrad. When I came here, I could have practiced as a traditional naturopath, but there's quite a big chasm between the traditional naturopaths and the naturopathic doctors. And so I thought, look, if I'm going to be in this country, I may as well get the highest qualification possible. So for me, I came through, you know, I was working in the fitness industry in my late teens. 
then I started getting interested in nutrition and then that sort of grew to natural medicine and naturopathy. I never wanted to be a doctor. I never set out to be a doctor. So MD was not even on my radar. So I came very much organically through the path of nutrition and natural medicine, the diploma in naturopathy. I did convert it to the bachelor's degree while I was in Australia. And then here it was like, okay, so I'm already a naturopath, but there's a bigger qualification here that will give me much more scope of practice, much more credibility. And so there wasn't even really a choice for me because I never set out to be a doctor. I set out to be a naturopath. It just so happens that America has naturopathic doctors. Now, many of our past podcast guests have found that naturopathic doctors have the ability to diagnose and treat Lyme disease better than medical doctors. What is it about the training and the experience and the protocols used by naturopathic doctors that may give you an advantage when diagnosing and treating Lyme patients? Well, I think these days, allopathic medicine has just got so segregated into the specialties. Right, So we have our primary care docs or internists, and they are basically the gatekeepers. So part of the problem I see in the Lyme world is those initial contacts, because most people will just go see their internist or their primary care doc first and say, oh, something's not right, and I don't know what it is. They'll run some basic blood work. They'll say, I can't find anything, but I'm going to send you to a neurologist. Sort of snowballs from there. And then you can go to a rheumatologist. So maybe we should send you to a cardiologist. So in allopathic medicine today, the body has been divided into parts or systems. And so the specialists only have their eyes on that system. So they will do their diagnostics and run their tests as it pertains to that system. Oftentimes they'll say, look, we're not finding anything and send them off to the next specialist to look at this other system. And I think where naturopathic doctors have the advantage is we're looking at the whole person. We're looking at you know, yes, they're depressed and anxious, but it's more than that. Like what if they're depressed and anxious and that was just depression and anxiety, why would they have numbness and tingling in their feet? Why would they have all this brain fog? Why would they have migratory joint pain? You know, the, the things that when you put them all together, it doesn't make sense. But, but specialists only look at that, their one little piece and they try and make sense of that little piece. And so we look at the whole person and also we try and get to the underlying cause. I mean, there's two principles of naturopathic medicine. Get to the underlying cause. So, okay, they have symptoms. We're not just going to treat the symptoms. Because in natural medicine, you can treat the symptoms just the same way as in allopathic medicine. They, they, they term it green pharmacy. But to be truly in, in line with our philosophies of medicine, it's about getting to the underlying cause. So why are they having that pain? Why are they having that numbness? Why is this going on? and digging and digging and digging until we figure it out. So I'm fascinated about your early career and the relationship between the autistic children you were treating and their mothers who you ultimately determined were suffering from Lyme disease. Did you ever make any connections between the autism that the children were suffering from and the Lyme that their mothers were suffering with? Yeah, well, it was interesting because one of the families that we knew at that time was Tammy Duncan. And she ended up starting the Lyme-Induced Autism Foundation. And she was very passionate. And she was very determined to see how many of the kids on the spectrum actually have Lyme themselves. And could that be a big, big piece, a big missing piece, explaining how autism spectrum disorders are just, you know, rates are rising at crazy levels. 
so she kind of really took that on as her baby and her project. And she had a couple of conferences and I spoke at her conferences. And we did determine that there is a subset of kids with autism who have Lyme disease. And it may have been passed, you know, in utero from mom to baby, or it may have been that they had an exposure of their own along the way. But that would, it was well, not the whole piece and certainly not every child on the spectrum has Lyme. So we found that there was some correlation, there was some connection. And especially now with, you know, PANS and PANDAS, I mean, we're getting more information about the impact of infections on the nervous system and just on development in kids overall. So I think it was a good connection to make. And I think Tammy, you know, she was fired up. She put a lot of energy into that and sort of really brought it to the light. And that all started, you know, with me and Kurt working together with her family. So how long did you work at that initial practice where you made this initial connection between uh, the patients that you were treating with autism and their parents who were suffering from Lyme disease? So I was there a couple of years in total. Like I said, the clinic was just north of San Diego when it started. <clears throat> what happened is Kurt separated then from biohealth centers and took the clinic back under his own business name and structure. And that was up in Temecula, which is about an hour away from me. So I did go up there with him. But ultimately, I knew I wanted to be based back in San Diego. And so we parted ways probably a couple of years later, very amicably. And also his wife is a naturopathic doctor and she'd been home with the young kids and she was sort of ready to get back into practice with him. So she was, you know, kind of looking for a space to open up for her. And so that's when I came down to San Diego and started my own practice. So that would have been, what, 2004, 2005, perhaps. And how much of your practice when you began your own practice was a Lyme-related practice? I would say probably at that point, 40% Lyme, 40% autism, and 20% miscellaneous. Has the percentage of the Lyme cases that you're now treating a larger percentage of your practice? Oh, yeah. I mean, now it's sort of 98%. If anyone came in to see me for anything else, I'd be a bit shocked. Why do you believe your practice went from a 40% Lyme practice back in the early 2000s to a practice now which is 98% Lyme? I think part of it is lack of providers. Like there's not many of us in Southern California that know Lyme. And there are a ton of people. Now, you know, I'm in San Diego. So there are ticks in California. There are ticks in San Diego that, that carry Borrelia, less so than other parts of the state and less so than other parts of the country. But so I have treated some acute cases here or some sort of semi-acute cases of people who might have got bitten up in Northern California on, on vacation or something. But, you know, a large group I work with is people who may have moved from somewhere else, had a tick bite somewhere else. I mean, I definitely work with more of the chronic cases. And I just think, you know, I remember thinking this, there were so many docs coming out, like back in the Dan organ organization, treating autism. And I really re remember thinking, like, the kids are okay. They're, they've got enough people working with them but the Lyme, I saw that there was a real need. And, you know, there's still only four or five of us docs in San Diego that treat Lyme or that are known for treating Lyme. And so I thought, you know, the autism guys, they're, that, that's a growing field. There's more and more practitioners that know what they're doing there. And so I think it really was just that sort of lack of availability. There's, you know, so few practitioners in Southern California in general and certainly in San Diego. And why do you believe there are so few practitioners in San Diego and in Southern California in general? I think probably because they just no one thought there was any line there. I mean, certainly when people go to their primary care docs today, 
they're still told that there's no Lyme in California. So I think it just wasn't on people's radar that there was a need for it here. Do you believe that there has been some change in the last 20 years that has caused the amount of Lyme disease to change in Southern California? Yeah, I mean, certainly I've seen uh, many more cases of people infected in Central California and Northern California. I certainly have a patient who was bitten 10 minutes from my office, and we're pretty close to downtown, and had the classic bullseye and classic acute presentation. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's here, but I think also people just move to San Diego because it's San Diego, you know, they want the climate. And and so there are just a larger number of people moving from other places too. But I definitely see in the last 20 years an increase in the prevalence of Lyme, but also an increase in the recognition of Lyme. And I think part of that has to do with social media, you know, people connecting and getting into Lyme forums and Lyme groups and comparing notes and seeing their situations and what other people are talking about. I think that when they get so, you know, like disgruntled with the care they're getting through their traditional medical route, they take it online, you know, and they research, they take it into their own hands and say, look, you know, I'm not, I'm not willing to live like this. And so I think social media has been a great connector of people. Obviously that goes both ways because then you have people just sort of treating themselves based on what some layperson told them to do. How have the diagnostic tools that you use changed over the course of the last 20 years? That's a good question. So, I mean, I still use, I still use mostly the same labs. I mean, I still use Igenics primarily. I've started using more DNA connections just to try and get more co-infection information. So frequently I'll do Igenics for the Lyme part and then DNA connections just to get a sense of, of the co-infection. But I have also developed what I call a co-infection provocation that involves using specific herbs in specific order to provoke co-infections and kind of make more of a clinical assessment like that. I've always been one, there's, there's two things that I'm really into that I don't see every doc being into. One is treating the three forms of the Borrelia. So I never do just one single antibiotic for Lyme because I know that then the risk is pushing it into dormancy, into cyst form, and that's not going to be a good long-term solution. So I tend to be a little bit more on the aggressive side, I suppose, but I just want to make sure I'm treating thoroughly. And then with co-infections, you know, I very much base things, yes, off labs, but a lot from clinical presentation, a lot from that co-infection provocation and what they report back to me after that. Because if they tell me like, yeah, I did the herb, but you know, the, the Lyme one, nothing much happened, but gosh, I did the Babesia one and oh, I was having night sweats every night. I was short of breath. I was having chills. I mean, they're good clues to me that, you know, Babesia is playing a big role for them. And so I use a lot of that information, but yeah, I, I feel like I've got pretty good over time at just kind of pinpointing co-infection, but I think the two big pitfalls in treatment are not addressing co-infections adequately and not addressing the three different forms of the Borrelia bacteria. So if, if people have been at other providers and those kinds of things have happened, then, you know, I think there's limitation in their recovery. What role do the blood tests, both from DNA connections and hygienics, play in your diagnostic toolbox? The basic Lyme panel through hygienics, and now I try and expand it to include the tick-borne relapsing fever, if the patient has the funds for it. I mean, if I had it all my way, I'd do the whole hygienics panel, co-infections and all, and the DNA connections. 
What would that cost your patients if you were to do all of what you would like to do by way of diagnostic testing? Yeah, probably like $2,000, $2,200. And some people are like, you know what, at this point, I need answers. I need information. My health is more important. Just get, get, do whatever you need to do. But what I'm tending to do is doing the Western blocks through IGENX and then doing the DNA connections, which is a little bit more cost effective. I'm not at the point yet where I trust DNA connections 100% for everything. And it depends where they are in treatment. If they're just coming to me brand new, then of course I'm going to want an IGENX Western blot. But if they've had treatment and they've got a couple of niggly symptoms and they're trying to differentiate, you know, is this mold? Is it heavy metals? My adrenal shot? Is it still active Lyme? Then the DNA connections is useful because it shows active infection. It's not going to be like the IgG Western blot, where an IgG, if it's positive, you think, well, is that just a memory cell? Is it just kind of recognizing Lyme, but it's not an active infection? Or does that mean that the infection is still active? So some of those antibody tests can be really ambiguous. But I still do the testing. I would never go into treatment with a patient without evidence of Lyme, especially doing antibiotic treatment, because that's just bad medicine. You know, you just want to know that you're barking up the right tree. As your practice began to develop, I, I noticed that you also began to engage in other forms of outreach. I understand that you've prepared papers at a number of different events. You have uh, written several books, and you also have a program that you sell online. Could you share with our listeners why you began to step outside of the traditional role of a clinician and you began to do the other work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, part of it was, I have found for myself, I've never seen patients more than three days a week. Anytime I've tried to do more, I, it just puts me in burnout. And so I was very, very fortunate to be approached by Connie Strasham and invited to provide a chapter in her book. That was sort of my first publication in book form. And that was a great experience. And it's kind of really helped to get my name out in the community. And then the next pivotal thing was writing the Lyme diet. And it's so funny because I sat at my mum's kitchen table in Sydney saying, okay, I've just got to write a diet handout. Everyone's asking me about diet. I'm just going to write a two-page handout. And six months later, it got published as a book. So that one just kind of went, you know, went where it needed to go. But that book, I, I truly feel has helped a lot of people. I've got very good feedback about it. And so I'm quite proud of that. And then I've always enjoyed writing. I've always loved writing. So the Beginner's Guide to Lyme, I wrote the first draft in like eight or nine weeks, just sitting at home at my kitchen bench. Anytime I wasn't with patients, I was doing that. So I enjoy, I enjoy teaching and educating. And that's why I love doing podcast interviews like this, or I love speaking at conferences. I just love to be able to help with whatever information I have to share and get out to people. And I like the different forms of media. Like I did that Lyme Ed course. That's an online course. And it's all based in modules and people can go through and listen front to back and then they can go back and sort of reinforce whichever modules they need that are related to them. There's also a practitioner version of that course because I really feel like we need more practitioners who are Lyme literate. So for me, it's just, you know, I, I enjoy having different projects going on and I'm just the kind of personality that if I get an idea in my head and I think it's a good one, like I, can't, I just can't put it to the side and ignore it. You know, I just have to follow through even if it's, the line ed took me two years because by then I had my daughter. And so it's really just that I love working one-on-one -on -one with people in the practice, but Lyme is hard and it's, it's definitely hard for the patients, but 
I was feeling that I was getting to the point of burnout and I just didn't want that to happen. And I noticed before I had my daughter, I coped with that much better, like emotionally and just kind of being able to kind of refill what I needed. But since then, I was putting so much energy into a young child, I just had less left over, you know. So I thought, well, let's try some of these other avenues to get information to a wider group of people, not just people who are seeing me, you know, in my office in San Diego. Can you give us more detail about the Lime Ed program that you created, what inspired it, and what type of information folks will be able to gain from going through that program? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, this first bit, it does go through all the basics. What is Borrelia? What are the co-infections? You know, all that stuff, signs and symptoms of each. So there's some beginning information that people who've been in the Lyme world for a while will, will know already. But I do go into the different types of testing and what to look for in direct tests and indirect tests, how to get the most out of your testing, interpretation of testing, and then sort of other things to consider, like, you know, looking at the adrenals and some of these other areas of functional health. And then it goes into treatment. So there's, there's a whole model, module on antibiotic treatment with all the protocols and things laid out. And then it goes next into a whole module on detoxification. Before we even talk about herbs, before we even talk about nutrition, there's an entire two-hour module on detoxification. And then, because I feel like that's really got to be kind of primary, and then we go into other natural treatments, herbal medicines, you know, supplements, how to support different things. Then there's a whole module on digestive health in Lyme and a whole module on hormone balancing in Lyme and then a module on nutrition. And then towards the end, there's a module on like the psycho-emotional elements of Lyme, different techniques that can help, you know, balance the emotions and regulate that aspect of it because I think that's so important. And then I talk at the end about you know, what does it look like from here? What does chronic Lyme look like? What does remission look like? What can I expect? You know, am I expecting to get 100% better? Or am I expecting to live at 80% forever? You know, so I talk through some of those questions because I think we're not talking about that enough. What type of feedback have you gotten from the folks who have purchased that program? I've got good feedback. I mean, I, I do always try to provide a lot of meaty information, not just kind of fluffy stuff. So it's very information dense, but it also has ways that people can implement in a very practical form with like protocols written out. There's a like Lyme diet action plan. So yeah, I have had good feedback on it. My desire is to also get it out to more of the practitioners. Like for example, in Australia, there's not many doctors who are treating Lyme anymore. There's been a lot of legal action against Lyme literate doctors. So I feel that naturopaths are going to be the ones kind of putting Humpty Dumpty back together. And so that they're the perfect people, you know, to, to listen to this kind of program. So it's been good. And then we've just come out with the Candida solution. So we've just come out with a shorter, but Lime Ed is like 22 hours. It's quite dense. We've come out with a shorter course just about Candida, but not just about, you know, here's the Candida diet and here's the herbs you take. It's sort of more in depth of like, how does leaky gut play into this? Like, how did candida overgrow in the first place? Back to like, what's the, un the underlying cause? Is there parasites? Where, is there inflammation in the gut? Is that related to food? What else is going on in the body? Is there mold exposure that's exacerbating candida overgrowth? So that's kind of our latest project. So we just wrapped that up last week. 
Why do you believe the Lyme Wars have become an international problem? We, we interviewed a young woman from Australia early on in our podcast, and we were really troubled by so much of what she told us. But as it turns out, I don't think Australia is unique in the way that it is dealing with the Lyme challenge. So what is your perspective on the Lyme War, and why do you believe it's an international problem? You know, I really wish I knew. I really wish I knew. I mean, there certainly is such a huge problem. And I know people think here in the States, there's not a lot of help. But to go back to somewhere you know, like Australia and look at the situation there, it's even worse. I mean, they're not even acknowledging really any Lyme or Lyme-like illness exists, even people who are PCR positive and haven't left the country. I mean, it's wild. So I don't know, to some extent, they're just following suit with the IDSA and kind of but it's bigger than that. I know it's bigger than that. I can feel that it's bigger than that. And, you know, doctors apparently in Australia, I talked to a couple of doctors that said the public health department came around to their hospital and said, if anyone said anything about Lyme, just, you know, don't treat them, don't acknowledge it, don't say it exists. I mean, these doctors are being coached to deny any existence. So these poor Aussies, and, and I'll mention now because I alluded to this earlier, like, I truly believe as much as I love my patients in America and that, you know, that's part of my calling, but I truly believe that the reason God brought me into the Lyme world is to sort of try and bridge the gap and help some of the Australians. And I see less Australian patients now, but there was a time that I was going back to Sydney and seeing, you know, 12 patients a day, five, five days in a row, helping them get hygienics testing listening to them, like having them have the experience that here's a doctor that knows more about Lyme than they do. And just trying, you know, bridge that gap and give them some guidance. And there's a couple of doctors there that I was working with very closely and they wouldn't treat their patient unless they were consulting with me. And sadly, those doctors have now been restricted. So there's still a couple of, you know, big centers in Australia. I can think of two centers in Australia that I know that are still treating Lyme and getting away with it. But most of the doctors that I started working with 15 years ago are restricted now. So you've accomplished so much. You've developed a practice that is uh, unique in the approach that it takes to treating Lyme patients in Southern California. You've written many books. You've lectured at conferences. You've developed these brilliant courses. What is the future for you and, and your business? That is an excellent question. I've been really spending a lot of time thinking on that. I mean, I, I really enjoy doing the things like the courses. I'm not sure there's another book in me. I've had a couple of people say, well, what about an update? But it just takes, it takes a lot. It takes a lot out of me. And I'm trying to focus more on being a mom. My little girl turned six yesterday. So, you know, they're precious years. And yeah, thank you. She's so cute. So we're busy with planning birthday parties and whatever. But you know, that's, she's my priority at this point. Like, I just want to have as much time to spend with her. It all goes by so quickly, you know, I just don't want to miss it. So in terms of, you know, I'm proud of the course. I'm proud of the books I've written. I would love to do more, kind of like more stuff that I could do through the internet because I do have family abroad. And, you know, as my little girl grows up, I try to get her around her cousins in Australia as much as possible. And so, you know, I have, I have no plans whatsoever to stop private practice. I am bringing in another naturopath, you know, so I, I do try to always have a second naturopath on hand and I train them up and I mentor them and I work with them. It's challenging though, because, you know, chronic illness, like all this Lyme and mold and SIRS and it's challenging for practitioners. And so, 
you know, to be very, very honest, I've had a hard time finding the right person who's willing to step into that. Or, you know, sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, this is too hard. I didn't realize. So yeah, just trying to kind of build up the clinic, offer more therapies, NAD by IV and peptide therapy and some of these novel things, because I do love having the clinic and I do love going there and seeing my patients. But I also would love to be able to, you know, go work in Australia for a month and be with my family too. What do you think the future is for Lyme disease? Well, I know that there's been, and I can never remember which way around it goes, like the Pentagon's ordered an investigation or, or vice versa. But this investigation into where the Lyme was weaponized, I'm going to be following very, very closely because there's been a lot of, I guess I'll call it conspiracy theory or whatever along the way, different theories about that. I think there is this, a reason why Lyme has just exploded since the mid-70s. I mean, clearly Lyme existed before that, but something happened. And I, I would love to get to the bottom of that, because if there is something that's being hidden, then that would help us to, to realize or understand the suppression of Lyme by the sort of government-led medical establishment. I don't usually talk about this stuff because I'm really not very conspiracy theorist. But when I read that that was actually coming, that investigation was ordered by a government agency, I thought, oh, okay, now I'm going to take this a little bit more seriously. Well, I, I did read Chris Newby's book, and I have to tell you, that book blew me away. We actually put up an Instagram post on uh, weaponized ticks, and it was responded to by hundreds of people who were, who were blown away by Chris Newby's book. And the U.S. Congress has instituted an investigation into the Pentagon's practices with regard to ticks. I think that will give us certainly some insight, but you know, there, there, are, there are some folks that we've interviewed here on our podcast, Dr. Rawls, for example, from North Carolina in particular, who argues mm -hmm. that it's not the increased exposure to ticks that's causing the increase in Lyme disease, but it's just the modern condition that, you know, that we, you know, we're living uh, lives that are causing us to hit the stress button at a pace that has never been seen in history before. And is it your sense that we are being exposed to the Lyme bacteria at a greater rate? Or do you think that we, we are just not as healthy or our immune system is not as capable of defending the invasion of the uh, bacteria? I think it's probably some of both, to be honest. I mean, yes, we are living in a world with a lot more toxicity and, you know, all the EMS and 5G. And so I do think that those things impact our body. And I do see, you know, I've seen so many cases where people might have had, you know, one or two symptoms, something really mild, something they didn't really pay too much attention to. And then some crisis happened in their life. You know, it could be a surgery, it could be a car accident, it could be a divorce, death of a loved one, some major stressor. And then Lyme just came raging out after that. And so I do think there are many cases where people are infected with the Lyme bacteria and it just sits dormant. The immune system copes with it. But then if something happens to tank their immune strength, then that gives Lyme the opportunity to come out in full force. And I've seen that time and time again. If I were to ask you whether you're encouraged or discouraged by the future of Lyme, Lyme diagnostic tools and Lyme treatment, what would you... How would you define your feelings? I would say in this country, I'm, some, I'm somewhat encouraged. I mean, I feel like, you know, if you look at ILADS, when I first going, started going to ILADS conferences, you know, 15 years ago, you know, it was a couple of hundred doctors in a room. And now ILADS books out. Like you can't, you know, a couple of thousand doctors. If you don't register in time, you can, 
deep this that fills up. So I do think that I do think that there's a growing number of practitioners who are aware of Lyme and who are willing to treat Lyme. I'm not so encouraged on the government front. I don't see a lot of shift there. The IDSA is still who they are. And, you know, and discrediting natural therapy. Somebody forwarded me an article that I'm cited in on several occasions that was sort of put out by that group that basically just went through alternative therapies and discredited them for no apparent reason. so government-wise, I'm not that encouraged, but I think just in terms of the base of practitioners, I think in terms of public education and public awareness, I think those things are improving. I do think there are labs trying to work on better testing, which is really important. But, you know, the better testing only works if the patient gets to it. If, the, if their primary care doc still has rubbish testing, then they just may not get to that next step. And so that I think we do have to work at that level too. So I'm now going to ask you to put your mom hat back on, and I would like you to share with our listeners how you are parenting your child so that she can avoid tick diseases. Ha, huh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, you know, we take all the standard precautions, and I can tell you a mom fail in this area too. We, you know, I'm not so conscious day by day here in San Diego. I certainly don't let her run around the park bare feet or anything. But like when we went to New York a few weeks ago and we were going into Central Park and she's like, let's go over on the grass here. And I'm like, no, 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 let's stay on the path. We're not going over there to sit. And, um, but I will tell you a story last spring break. We're up in Morrow Bay, which is Central California. It's a sleepy coastal town. And we were with friends and I was aware of it. And I had my tick guard spray. And if we would go for a walk, we'd stay on the clear path. I'd spray everybody before we went but we were at this park downtown and the kids were playing and my daughter Valentina had just come over to me to get her hair tied in a ponytail and then she ran off to play and like three minutes later I looked up and I saw this big black thing on her neck and I said Valentina come back here and it was a tick and I did the worst thing that I could have done I panicked I pulled it off and I threw it oh right yeah 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 because I was so not expecting that and I so wasn't prepared for what to do in that moment. In hindsight, of course, I should have had tweezers to really make sure I was pulling it off correctly. I should have put it in a Ziploc baggie. I should have sent it in for testing. And I wasn't going to tell her, but the friends we were with yelled out, oh, Valentina's got a tick. And Valentina lost it. I mean, she was five and she's like, I'm going to get Lyme disease. I'm going to be sick like mommy's patients. She was just hysterical. And, uh, but it had only been on for like not even two minutes, three at the most. I watched her like a hawk. There was no rash, no symptoms and, you know, nothing's come of it. I did not treat her with antibiotics. She's never had an antibiotic in her life, but with no evidence of a problem, I just, you know, I just wasn't going to do that. Had I been in an area where I could have got to some better herbs, I probably would have done something more natural. But anyway, I think I dodged a bullet on that one, but that was, that was what not to do. I can, I can give you an example of what not to do as a mom. Tell me why you reacted the way you did and why you pulled the tick off and threw it away. It was just a reflex. It was just simply a reflex. Get that thing off my daughter and just get rid of it. And that, I didn't have any other thought process in that minute. I really didn't. I didn't have like the rational kind of step-by-step thought of, okay, how do I address this? I just slightly panicked. Well, because the fear triggers or the fear circuits in your brain took control over your actions, correct? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. 
So how would you do it differently if, God forbid, your daughter were to be bitten by a tick again? I would, if I was going to a place like that, I would take those, you know, handy dandy little tweezers that have the bend in them so that they, they really pull the tick off, you know, the best possible way. And I would carry a couple of little Ziploc baggies and I would save the tick and I would send it in for testing. You don't travel with tweezers or a tick kit of any type. I do now. <laughs> but at, at that time, no, I did not. One of the things that we've been looking at is John Astaroff's work where he talks about inner size and the way to take steps to protect your brain from causing the fear triggers to control your actions. And one of the things he recommends is that before you take any action when your fear circuits have been triggered is that you take six breaths through your nose and out your mouth before you take any, any actions. Would you think that if you had that information at the time that your daughter had been bitten by a tick, that perhaps you might have been able to remove it properly and save it for testing? Yeah, I mean, I think in the moment, if I had practiced that, and therefore it had become part of my toolkit of, of my responses, yes. I mean, I think that the, but the decisions would have had to go further back than that. The decisions would have to be, okay, let's be proactive about carrying the right things all the time, you know, like not just because we were just in town at this buying shells at the shell shop and then the kids just wanted to go play at the, the playground for five minutes. Like, so the, the decisions would have had to be further back than that. But in the moment, I think those kinds of things could be helpful, but they, ha but they have to be practiced in my opinion, because if you don't practice them, it's harder to draw on them in an acute situation. What types of things were you looking for as you watched your daughter for the three, four, five-week period after she had the tick bite? Um, well, of course, the first thing I was looking for was a rash. So when she slept at night, I would, you know, pull her hair back and, and kind of sneak a peek. So there was no rash. There was no mark at the, at the side of the bite. There was no rash. There was no fever. There was no change in behavior. There were no aches and pains. And there were no headaches. There was, there was zero signs or symptoms that there was something wrong. And for how long a period of time did you track her when you were concerned about her possibly having an acute reaction to her contact with the tick? A good couple of weeks. I mean, generally speaking, I feel like, you know, within a couple of weeks, something would have changed. And, you know, that was April. And to this day, I've seen zero, zero changes, zero problems, just happy and healthy and running around and energetic. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Dr. Nicola Descharm. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Ducharme and her tick disease journey, please visit her at drnicoladucharme.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.